0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Dja and the Wadawurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and Aboriginal Elders of other communities who may be listening. No, it didn't sound right. Oh, now yeah. I'm going off.
0: Oh, yeah, now I can see you and I can see me. Yeah, there off. we go. All yeah. right. okay. Fucking going off tap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's back Where? going off. off. We're recording. All right, we've got
1: to remember what we talked about because that was cool.
0: Um, the weather. The weather. <laughs>
1: And welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name's Annie, and joining me today, as always, is the lovely Phoebe.
0: Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. It is that moi. Was, <laughs> that was lovely.
1: That was in your best podcasting voice.
0: Thank you. Yes, thank
1: mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's dropped yeah. a few octaves. Uh, yeah, she's started <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, how are you? What's been uh, going on?
0: I'm great. Mm. I'm great. Um, how are you? Mm. What's been going on? Well, we were just saying the weather's been fabulous. Oh, the weather's here. been
1: great. It's mm. been look, it's been lovely. It's lovely now, mm. although. Bit of rain, bit of rain about. Bit, bit of, of rain. rain,
0: bit of rain. So my um, parents are overseas at the moment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know, dad's sending the messages. I'm going. We're expecting forty mils over, you know, Thursday, Friday, yeah. or whatever it is. And, and, do you, and are you
1: expected to like batten down the hatches and like uh, prepare.
0: I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what he <laughs> expects us to do. Right. He just he's it's it's just the typical, information. It's the information. Yes. He's your typical, you know. 60s like in any 60s farmer his yeah. mum and dad are overseas sending the text message you know you know yeah. make sure you check the weather he's like technology escaped him and he's got a smartphone is has about 5 apps on rotation yeah. you know the news the afl app and yes. like three or four different weather apps and oh, he just yeah, constantly yeah. constantly he's on, yeah, he's on the bomb and then he's on this and he's on that and he's like nope let me check and then he's like i've yeah. got the weather vane the old school weather vane at home on the wall which is right. probably the most accurate which completely fascinates me but probably the most accurate thing but yeah got it just got to check you know i've been out there checking the rain gauge and sending photos
1: Oh, yeah, it's a thing, isn't it? Like I I realised that since I moved to regional Victoria, the amount of discussions around water in general, Mm. water falling from the sky, water in (laughs) tanks, water in dams, water pumps. Um, And it's like every single time you come across another human, you have to talk about water in some Mm. context.
0: Yeah. And farmers are never happy. There's too oh, much rain. Yep. There's not enough rain. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's too cold. It's too hot. They're never happy. Never. 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 Mm. But um, so my parents are overseas. They're in Turkey at the moment. Mm. And um, they've just done the tour of Gallipoli and Anzac Cove. And mum said they had a fantastic uh, tour guide, local Amazing. tour guide. And. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, talking about the Australian side of things and he happened to mention, um, he said, oh, do you know, you know, there was a woman, an Australian woman called Gertrude Bell and my mum said, oh, my goodness, yes, my daughter does a podcast oh, I know what? all about her. Whoa. So I thought, No, oh, isn't that lovely? That's so, incredible and yeah. so
1: good that, it, that that tour guide is telling her story or talking mm. about her and knows her.
0: Absolutely That's so fantastic.
1: really cool very cool. Maybe he heard our
0: podcast. <laughs> maybe maybe he's a listener. Oh mm. hello <laughs> Mister, Hello Turkey.
1: Mm. Hello to Turkey. Um, <laughs> Turkey's a great place. I, I went to Turkey and did all that and mm. did that did a tour as well of Gallipoli and the tour guide had the most interesting accent because he had had so many Australians on his tour. That he had a Turkish slash Australian accent. Oh wow! Because he because that's how he learnt kind yeah. of English, right? Yeah. mimicking and and learning kind of slang from hanging around so many Australians. It was unbelievable. And how's your week been? Uh, my week's been good. I've been getting back into reading. I've started to try to read and finish a couple of books that I've got. On the go, one of them I was just talking to you about mm-hmm. um, called Welcome Home by Nawa Zibian. I hope I've pronounced that right. But it's a beautiful little reminder of how to build a home for your soul and how we shouldn't be putting our, we shouldn't be trying to build homes in other people mm-hmm. and we should connect to our homes within ourselves.
0: Yes. yes. Okay. Welcome to Annie's TED Talk.
1: Welcome to Annie's (laughs) TED Talk. Now close your eyes. (laughs) Imagine a foundation of a house. (laughs) Um, No, it's very good. Anyway, uh, yeah, and just listening to a bunch of podcasts as I do. Um, The Shandy story, the one I was telling you about, Shandy's Legacy, which is the season two of that, listen to that next episode. and it just it's such it's the biggest balls up. It just seems to be getting worse mm. and worse. Like they're just uncovering mm. all of this stuff about the Queensland Health's um, DNA lab that is just I mean, it, yeah, it's it's frightening, yeah. it's absolutely frightening the amount of of cases that that have just you know, gotten through anyway. Mm. What's your What's
0: your little fact first today? Surnames we all have one. We do. Sometimes we've got two, double barreled. Uh, but did you know that surnames didn't come into being as we know them now until around the end of the 12th century? I,
1: was I did gonna not say know that.
0: that's fairly recent, but that is not. <laughs> so uh, it was just
1: like a one one word. Name. Yeah. So you one just, name name.
0: Just yeah. Just your. Your Madonna. Christian name, exactly. We are all share, and yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I will add that this relates to um, those of Anglo-Saxon heritage, um, so Giles, yes. etc. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so why have we not always had surnames prior to this time? People, people were often known as a nickname or something in relation to where they lived, so as well to identify them,
1: yeah,
0: or differentiate um, from someone else. So for example, um someone might be known as little John, so that could have been the smaller of the two men in the local village known as John. So little John yes. and big John. Yes. Yeah, so prior to the introduction of surnames, it was a time when villages and communities, even if they were neighboring or very close by, were separated and essentially um, you didn't see, you rarely saw people outside of that community. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was no need to differentiate between people and families. Uh, so then around the end of the 12th century, the Anglo-Saxon ruling class and therefore the upper classes began to introduce surnames to differentiate between people.
1: Mm-hmm. And these were
0: usually fashioned from things such as a place where a family lived, the nickname of a person, so for instance, Little John. Yes. Um, Their relation within the family. So, for example, Johnson would be the son of John. um, And quite often, yeah. I never thought of that. Mm, Yeah. So, really, anything with sort of a son at the end is the son of. Will be the son
1: of. Yeah. That's amazing. I've just Mm. realized that. How fascinating.
0: Yeah. And then quite often a surname would be derived from someone's occupation. Mm, So that's mm -hmm. probably one of the more common. Yep. So over the next two centuries after that, surnames became more commonly, uh, more common and widely spread across the rest of the population. So not just the upper class and the ruling class. And just as an interesting aside, there have been studies that that have been done that show that in South Korea, 20 million people share just five surnames. So as a genealogist, that just yeah. makes my head explode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. right. whereas um, Scandinavian countries tend to add the word "son" as well to the end of um, uh-huh. to the end of names. So Anderson, son of Ander. Yes. Um, yeah. In places like Iceland, it would you could be the daughter of someone. So like Ander daughter. Yeah, it's a bit, right. yeah, I know that it's really, it's very confusing. Yeah. Um, and then, as I said, British and Anglo-Saxon surnames tend to be more descriptive and often based on someone's mm-hmm. trade or skill.
1: hmm hmm
0: But then, you know, spelling for surnames has changed quite a lot over time, you, usually because it was said phonetically. Yep. Um, someone could have been illiterate, that sort of thing. Um. So for example, I get really annoyed when my name gets spelt incorrectly and both my first and my surname get spelled incorrectly all the time. Yeah. It really gives right. me the shits. Um all the time. Because How do they my, misspell so Phoebe they well, quite often well yeah. Phoebe's a hard it's a hard yeah, name as is. So quite often it's tricky. P-H. I'm P-H-O-E-B-E, but quite often people spell it P H E O B E. Yeah. Um and my surname is Wilkins which is most commonly spelt w-i-l-k-i-n-s but i am e-n-s and it's funny people say
1: Mm. a few people
0: say and all my family do it when people say what's your name and i'll spell it and i'll say W-I-L-K-E-N-S, and i really and we all do it apparently my whole family really emphasize that e really emphasize um so whilst i that name is Dutch or European, it's likely that it has Anglo-Saxon roots and the Wilkins can be traced back to mean the. it's created from the name or nickname of William.
1: That's fascinating. I actually know, so my last name is, I mean, I've never liked my last name growing up because it was um, very hard to pronounce and also hard to spell. So um, it is Stelliano and it's Italian and it's, if you read it, you would say staglieno.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's got the G, L, and the I, which is always silent when they're together in in Italian. So, you know, a lot of the times I'm like, it's a silent G, it's a silent G, it's a silent G. <laughs> um, and then I, I went to Italy, um, oh gosh, 20 years ago now, and met someone who was a a, um, a distant distant relative, and he told me the story of where Stelliano cam- comes from, and um, it is it used to be there was a job of a guy who used to sit at the port, and he the, he used to lift this arm of this gate up, which was called a stallion, mm-hmm. and um, the guy that worked on that was called stalliano oh. and it went on to become an era of art in mm-hmm. period of art in italy and there's actually a in genoa there's a stalliano piazza mm-hmm. and suburb and a whole thing so it's fascinating isn't it mm. that where your names come yeah
0: from. so my other my other name my um Another name in my family tree mm. is Taylor, which mm-hmm. derives, I mean, that's fairly obvious, it's T-A-Y-L-O-R, but that derives from Taylor as in a seamstress You're a Taylor. or someone to, yeah, yeah. to make the clothing. So there you go. I
1: dated a guy with the last name Drinkwater. Yes. yes. The story goes that it was because the one guy who would go to the pub would drink water. Oh. Party pooper.
0: Party pooper. Or designated driver.
1: Well, yeah. Look, it's probably made up, but I like that story anyway. Yeah, Nonetheless, yeah. I've, got, I've got an interesting one for you for you today. Is, is that a bird? The birds are going off again. It's magpie season.
0: It is it's magpie indeed. Magpie
1: season, and all Mag- the maggies are calling me.
0: Magpies and plovers.
1: So, Peeps, yes. Tell me, how much do you know about bridges? Um, bridge over
0: troubled water. <laughs> um, Beautiful. no, I know that they help you get over waterways. That's probably as, um, yeah, yeah okay, that's about the extent of my bridge knowledge. Okay, mm.
1: good, good. Have you heard of the Sydney Harbour Bridge?
0: Um, let me think. Yes, I think it rings a bell.
1: Okay, yep, <laughs> Yeah. Now, did you know that a woman? by the name of Kathleen Butler, was integral in getting one of the most iconic structures in Australia built.
0: I did not know that. Tell me more. Tell me more. Sit
1: back and enjoy. So, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating story and only learnt this a couple of days ago listening to a podcast called Forgotten History which is an amazing Australian history podcast. If you you like that kind of thing, if you're listening to us, you might like history, so you might want to give that a go. Um, Really, really in-depth. He does a two-parter on Kathleen, so I did a little bit of research plus listened to his podcast. So some of the information is taken from that but also some of my own research. But, um, yeah, let's begin because it's amazing. So Kathleen Muriel Butler was born on the 27th of February, 1891 in Lithgow in New South Wales. Uh, So Lithgow, for those playing at home, is a small town about 140 kilometres west of Sydney. It's very close to the famous Blue Mountains area. So her father uh, came out... To Australia from England in 1878, and he was a railway worker back in the UK, and so he soon found work at Mount Victoria, where he would be the station master for the next 35 years. So this part of New South Wales was a very popular day-tripping destination, thanks to the introduction of a railway that opened in 1860, and it connected uh, Sydney to Western New South Wales, and was called the Zigzag Railway. And it operated till I think the mid-19, I want to say 20s or 30s and it shut down. Then they got um, some money to try to restore it back again and I, I think it's currently not, not active. But it, it, everywhere, if you do any bushwalks around the Blue Mountains, you'll sooner or later come across the old railway line. Mm-hmm. So in 1883, her father married Annie Gaffney and they went on to have seven children. One of those was Kathleen. They lived in the Stratford Cottage in Mount Victoria, which still stands today and operates as a bed and breakfast.
0: Oh, lovely.
1: Kathleen attended primary school in Mount Victoria and then went on to attend Mount St. Mary's College in Katoomba. At the age of 16, she leaves school and she starts working at the local steelworks, which had just been awarded contract contract To check for steel quality and integrity. It was kind of like a testing. Mm -hmm. Station. Uh, Kathleen's hired to help in the testing office as a clerk and a typist. And this is where her interest in what we would call STEM these days really took hold. So science, technology, engineering, and maths. Mm -hmm. So some would say that uh, Kathleen's interest in steel came from her father, given his railway career. But she would later attribute her career to her mother, who was a very skilled drawer and oversaw many constructions of buildings. After a few years at the testing office, things turn a little sour. Her boss is having a bit of a rough trot. His son dies and of appendicitis. He also declares bankruptcy and he's then suspended for taking bribes and not testing the steel properly and just kind of going, Yeah, it'll do. That'll do. That'll yeah. do. That's Give me tested. my catch. So the testing site is shut down and the government cancels its contract with the facility. It's closed down. This guy is transferred out to other government departments and Kathleen, who is now 19, travels to Sydney and joins the staff of the Chief Engineer of Metropolitan Railway Construction, which was a branch that was established in 1912 in Sydney to deal with Sydney's transit problems. It's here she meets a guy by the name of John. Bradfield. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a Sydney cider, you would know the name Bradfield. We have the Bradfield Highway, and um, he is fam- famously known for building the Harbour Bridge. So, and this would be the beginning of her long association with with John Bradfield. She begins working as his secretary and for the next decade she becomes a sponge and she masters all kinds of technical matters relating to engineering and she becomes a highly skilled project manager. So we're just going to go back in time to Sydney in the early 19th century um, and as we know, Sydney was first colonised on the south side of the harbour. So if you're ever coming into Sydney between the heads, you'll know that there's a south side of Sydney and a north side of Sydney, south heads and the north heads. And so on the south side is the Sydney CBD and that's kind of where, you know, it was, we, Sydney was first colonised colonised. And uh, on the north side, there was a lot of land on the north side, but not many people had colonised that side because you needed a boat to get across. But it wasn't long before overcrowding on the south side became a huge problem. So the population grew, everyone was trying to cram into their one space and they were like, something's got to give. So just as the Aboriginal people had done for thousands of years before the white folk came. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anyone wanted to go to the north side of the harbour, they would need a boat and in 1807, the first licensed boatman, a man by the name of Billy Blue, starts his own transport business and starts to transport people across the harbour. It soon becomes apparent that the need for a bridge to connect the south side and the north side is imminent. So, Way back in 1815, a guy by the name of Francis Greenway was the first person to propose a bridge. His argument included the practical benefits but also he said if both sides of the harbour looked to be colonised and built up, this would look really impressive to anyone coming to Australia through the heads for the first time. <laughs> be like, oh, wow, <laughs> this great. This is sick. <laughs> White man's just not only wrecked that side of the harbour, let's <laughs> also wreck the other side of the harbour. Yeah, well, even Stevens. Even Stevens. Yeah. So, in the next century that followed, many bridges are proposed from floating bridges to tunnels to arch bridges to cantilever bridges. Mm-hmm. In 1896, four bills are introduced to Parliament for the construction of two bridges and two tunnels, but it never get, goes anywhere. Then in 1900, the Minister for Transport receives more designs, and again, nothing's accepted. Uh, in 1908, a royal commission into the construction of a bridge is called for, but again, nothing is passed. And it won't be until around 1920 when the government finally agrees that a bridge would be a good idea. Mm. So the government uh, puts a call out for submissions and says, okay, send us your ideas. If you guys guys want a bridge, tell us your ideas. So initially the bridges that were put forward weren't going to carry trains until John Bradfield submits his plan for a cantilever bridge carrying four lanes, a roadway, a motorway and a footway with an estimated cost of £2,750,000. It's a lot, a lot of money.
0: A lot of money.
1: So... Again, there's a lot of stalling. There's a lot of like, yeah, we'll do it. No, we won't do it. That's a lot of money. We should really spend that money on the war effort. We should, you know, we don't want the people in the country thinking we're spending all of the money in New Mm -hmm. South Wales on a bridge, you know, what about the people, What you know, we've got to kind of not be seen to be favouring the city people. But eventually in July 1912, Bradfield's plans accepted, although the bill had still not been passed in Parliament for the construction. And he just takes it as a green light anyway, and he starts to put his team together. The first person he hires is none other than Kathleen Butler. So it was a mixture of her, definitely hired on her merits of engineering skill, but also the fact that she was a really good communicator, Mm -hmm. that she was, you know, there was going to have to be a lot of comms and a lot of uh, correspondence between, Mm -hmm. you know, people in Australia and also looking to tender for the bridge overseas. Her job title was confidential secretary to the Mm -hmm. chief engineer and that actually disguised her role um, which was quite significant on the project. Today her job title would be technical advisor or senior project manager. Mm -hmm. Bradfield really looks to Kathleen as his right-hand woman. He encourages her to get involved as much as she can and the pair begin to work on the bridge plans. They start work and then obviously the war comes up and it puts a massive stall on all of the um all of the plans so during this time Kathleen and uh Bradfield continue working on the design of the bridge and she remains focused and dedicated to him every step of the way even though all of the men in the team have left and gone off to war she's like I'm here with you and I'm going to stick it out and let's do this thing so Over the next decade, she works with him and is involved in all aspects of project planning and she acts as a linchpin for the information flow and she's mastered all sorts of intricate technical matters of engineering. She also realises that although the technical aspects are very important, so too are public relations and the developing relationships to try to fight the red tape. And developing relationships to try to fight the red tape will be very important for the bridge to be built. Kathleen becomes like a PR manager for the bridge. She writes articles for local newspapers. She tries to get everyone on side by putting forward enticing arguments to get the bridge built. After a third bill to get the bridge built was passed was again passed by the legislative assembly parliament dissolved it before the council could vote again so it's all still happening it just seems mm. like they keep trying to go we need this they keep trying to pass the bill parliament says nada After a third bill is again passed and later dissolved by Parliament, this doesn't stop Bradfield and Kathleen and they continue working to prepare the very important documents which include the specifications for engineering of the bridge. Bradfield then has to travel to New York and London so he's trying to see if he could get anyone overseas to tender for the bridge and Kathleen is left behind to basically look after all of the matters on the ground. And Bradfield takes with him the specifications that Kathleen has prepared. When Bradfield uh, is in New York, the government does another backflip and puts a pause on the bridge again and says, this isn't going to happen, we're not going to spend our money, he needs to come home and party's over. Kathleen cottons onto this and she beats the government to getting a telegram to Bradfield, telling him instead to move on so that when the cable arrives, he won't be there and he could essentially just continue his work without mm-hmm. disruption and use the argument that the telegram never reached him. So he wasn't doing anything wrong. So by the time the government's telegram gets to Bradfield after hers, mm-hmm. he's already in London and he's already talking to other companies about about the bridge. And then eventually the government again changes its mind (laughs) and agrees to having a bill submitted to parliament once again. So a lot of historians say that had it not been for Kathleen acting so quickly to get the message to Bradfield that the bridge most probably would have stalled again and that the companies that they were approaching for tenders would have lost faith and that they would have probably had to start from scratch again. Okay, so by now it's 1922 and the government agrees to consider another bill. So Kathleen is tasked with preparing the brief for parliament while Bradfield Bradfield is still away. Finally, after more than A century after the first ideas of a bridge and more than a decade of Kathleen and Bradfield preparing and planning, the British firm Dorman Long are appointed in 1924 and Kathleen wastes no time in publicising the specifics of their plans, writing an in-depth newspaper article about our Harbour Arch Bridge, the world's record, in the Sydney Mail on the 12th of March 1924. Now, why I found this story so fascinating is because at this point in the story it's worth note- noting that our listeners would be forgiven for thinking that Bradfield would be taking all the credit. Mm. And that the fact that, you know, she had prepared these documents and they were the they were the documents that were given to parliament, that really it was it was the man's job and she was just there typing up his notes. But this is actually the complete opposite. He, he wants the world to know that it was Kathleen's incredible attention to detail and accuracy in her technical notes that helped to get the bill passed. He wants to ensure that the public know all about her hard work and at every opportunity he mentions that it was all Kathleen who arranged and indexed all the specifications on which tenders for the bridge had been issued from his office. Although he said he created the drafts, she took those drafts and notes and compiled them so that the information could be submitted to Parliament. Bradfield also quotes feedback he receives from some of the companies he's seeking a tender from, saying the specification was the most detailed and specified they had ever encountered. Good on him. Good on you, Bradfield. Yeah. We like you. Mm. That doesn't happen often. No. Kathleen tells the Evening Standard newspaper at the time, we were working on the report for six weeks, night and day. I think I know that report and the specification off by heart. Those were exciting days. I was the only woman present in the minister's room when the tenders were opened. It was the most exciting moment. So, with Bradfield back in Sydney, uh, he's needed on the ground to deal with the matters there. uh, And because they've appointed this company in London, Kathleen hops on a boat and heads off to the UK with three engineers, and she's tasked with setting up offices to run the London end of the project. That that's going to be based in the Dorman Long offices. The Australasian claimed that Miss Butler is in charge of the visiting party on £500 a year, a very significant salary and much increased from her 1916 typist salary of £110 per annum when she first joined the New South Wales Department of Public Works in Sydney. Her tasks included attending the most difficult and technical questions in regard to the contract and dealing with a mass of correspondence. Another notable woman, Dorothy Donaldson Buchanan, the first woman in Britain to gain qualification as a civil engineer, was also working on the bridge project in the same dormant long offices at the time. Isn't that fantastic? That's cool. Two women yep. in the 1920s working Killing on it. one of the most iconic structures in the world together. Mm. Unbelievable. In the podcast he goes into sort of more detail around what she did while she was over there, and you know she was she was hands on. You know she was going around to checking all the rivets and all of the you know making sure that the rivets had to fit exactly and everything had to be mm. perfect, and everything was you know engineered to an an nth degree, like to to her specifications, and she oversaw all of it, making sure that whatever was written on her paper was being translated you mm-hmm. know into the little the models and stuff that they were creating and apparently the first thing ever made out of the steel that the sydney harbour bridge is made from was a little trinket box that the engineers made for her a little jewellery box and it had some inscription on the inside that her family still to this day oh, own i love that yeah mm-hmm. isn't that cool so uh, Kathleen receives enthusiastic press attention in London and at home in Australia for her work. Her arrival in London featured in both the suffrage magazine The Vote and in several gossip columns which complemented her expertise and noted her interest in surfing, tennis and dancing. And it's really funny because all of the stories, because he reads in the podcast, he reads a lot about the the articles, the newspaper articles of the time and he actually quotes them and reads them out and a lot of them say, you know, even though she's she's a working woman and she's, you know, doing these jobs of a man, that they still have to say that she's also very ladylike and she's mm-hmm. also doing the things that women and ladies should mm-hmm. do, yes, like tennis and dancing. Mm-hmm. So even though she is doing engineering but she's also, you know, she's actually also still not forgetting that she's a lady. Yes. Does her needlework. Mm. Does her needlework. Although I love her interest in surfing Yes, and dancing. <laughs> Legend. As the Echo put it in 1924, she's an advocate of hard work, leavened with an equal part of healthy recreation. Mm. Love it. The Woman Engineer Journal of the Women's Engineering Society described her as a pioneer and the first Australian woman to take a practical interest in engineering enterprise. Kathleen returns to Australia in January 1925 and her family throws her a party in Lithgow where she announces that she would be returning to Sydney on Monday and on Tuesday she would enter in earnest on the six years' job of constructing the Harbour Bridge. In 1926, Kathleen contributed two illustrated articles to the Woman Engineer Journal detailing the technical work progress on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, including one photograph of Kathleen herself drilling the first hole into the steelwork for the bridge. She undertook site visits with the project engineers, including the expect Inspection of the excavation for the southwest skewback bridge, bridge speak. Ah,
0: uh huh, uh
1: uh-huh. Yeah, now this is where the story takes a bit of a turn. Oh, no, god, <laughs> no, no, and guess what it involves? No,
0: probably a man. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> in
1: 1927, great band, Kathleen gets married to Maurice Haggerty. He's a grazier. He lives in Karnamala in Queensland and they get married in St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. So because she's getting married, it means that she has to make the very difficult decision of choosing to be a housewife, well, not choosing to be a housewife, of being forced to be a housewife and leaving her career because women at the time couldn't have it all. You could not be a wife and a worker. Just,
0: just a wife with no brains. That's, That's all you like to do. No opinion.
1: Yeah, and. They go on to have a daughter named Anne in 1931. And by all reports, the husband sounds like a bit of a dick. Apparently he was quite abusive, had a drinking problem, would often come home drunk. And it just didn't sound like a very nice man at all. And Kathleen, you know, she really must have regretted her decision. She was this amazing worldly you know, incredible woman with this career and knowledge and she's being respected in circles of men and all of a sudden she finds herself on a grazier station in Cunnamulla in Queensland being a farmer's wife.
0: God, in the middle of nowhere.
1: Right. She did, however, keep in touch with uh, Bradfield and his family. Although she wasn't technically working on the bridge, um, she was still trying to keep across it Mm -hmm. and she also made sure that she was there for the opening of the sydney harbour bridge in 1932 her love of bridges and engineering continued even though she wasn't able to work and in uh, 1936 she took her her daughter and to visit bradfield uh, and his wife in sydney admitting that she cannot curb her interest in the new queensland bridge at kangaroo point Um, for which uh, Bradfield was the consulting engineer, and she told him that she hates to be out of it all. Oh, mm-hmm. so um, that's kind of all I've got on her. She she dies in 1972, okay, and she's buried in the Macquarie Macquarie Park Cemetery in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And in 2019. A 130-metre tunnel boring machine for the Sydney Metro Tunnel is named Kathleen in her honour. And I just cannot believe that we've never heard of her.
0: No, never.
1: Never heard of this woman, this amazing woman, Kathleen Muriel Butler, who hand-in-hand with John Bradfield Built, built the Harbour Bridge and is the reason that the Harbour Bridge mm. is what it is today.
0: Yep.
1: We've bloody heard of Bradfield. I mean, bless him. He sounds like a great guy. You know, we've got the Bradfield Highway and, and whatever. But nothing about her.
0: Kathleen gets a drill. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> she gets a drill. I was trying. Mm. No, it's actually a boring machine.
0: It's a boring machine. Sorry. Sorry. Boring,
1: machine. Boring. It's
0: a giant drill. (laughs) I know. That's how we need to talk about these legendary ladies. We do. People can find out about them.
1: And I don't know about you, but I won't look at the Sydney Harbour Bridge the same Mm -hmm. now again. You know, and every time I cross that bridge, I'm going to think of of Kathleen and think, you know, this is – it's incredible like in the 20s and 30s this a woman you know travelling to the other side of the world to run a project that becomes one of the most iconic structures in Australia if not mm. the world everyone's heard of the Sydney Harbour Bridge just incredible so Kathleen Butler we bloody salute you well done Kathleen well Yay! done so that's another great chick done and dusted until next time and until next time See you later.
0: See you later. Bye. Bye.